three that he that he mentions. Thumbs down? No? What? Did you just give me a thumbs down? Oh, okay. Uh, the last time I was up here, uh, I figured I had clarified enough uh, who I was. Um, but as a reminder, in case you're new or confused, I am not Wingreso Valui. So if you just looked up the church online, this is probably not what you were expecting, and that's okay. Um, but as Pastor Valui said uh, last week, my name is Matt Stevens, or as he said, Dr. Matt Stevens. Um, now, while this is technically correct, this is the part that I need to clarify. Uh, I am uh, a clinical primary care pharmacist. Uh, I am not a physician, so no, uh, I don't have a good specialist I can recommend for you. Uh, yes, you should absolutely get all the vaccines that are recommended for you and your children. And no, I will absolutely not look at that questionable rash. Okay. So, now that we've established the ground rules for this encounter, uh, let's, let's move on. This is usually the part of the sermon where the guest speaker is trying to appear human and uh, establish a relationship with the audience, uh, so that way you will listen and trust me for the remainder of my talk. And so most speakers at this point um, usually talk about their family, and I have never been able to do that. Until now. Um, it's, it's not a secret anymore uh, that my wife, Kimberly, is pregnant. Um, we are expecting our first child in October. Uh, there he is. Thank you. I, I, I would say I worked really hard on that, but the truth is that's all my wife. So thanks, Kim. You're, uh, you're doing fine work. Um, yeah, this is, this is my son. Um, and I'd love to show you how I know that, but um, as you can see, he has no shame. He was showing it off, but I, we're in church, so I'm not going not gonna to put that up for you. Uh, people are constantly asking me if I'm excited. Yes. Uh, they ask me if I'm ready, and the answer to that, of course, is, oh, God, no. Um, I'm not sure how I could ever be ready for this. Uh, it's the most frightening and exciting time of my life. And while I can't say that I know all of what it means to be a father, I mean, my child isn't even here yet, okay, um, it did have me start thinking about our salvation from the perspective of the father. And this is something that I had never considered before. Uh, I have always been the son. And it's an entirely new way of looking at uh, my salvation. So for some of you, this is old news. Uh, you've been through this. You know every step I'm about to walk um, because you've walked it before as a father or a mother, uh, an aunt or an uncle. Uh, you have a uh, child, nieces, nephews, or you saw a picture of a baby once, right? And went, oh, baby, okay. So you've already been there, but walk with me here for the next few minutes because um, I want to share some of my perspective on what our salvation cost the Father, what it cost the Son, and then how we respond in light of this. Um, so there's no better way to sum up um, the love of the Father than by looking at the third chapter of the Gospel of John. Uh, in fact, John 3.16 is probably the most used verse to explain the general overview of what we believe. Uh, we take this verse and we throw it on shirts, uh, we put it on mugs, uh, we put it on eye tape, uh, we plaster it on our cars, our trucks, mopeds, uh, and we expect that somehow we're going to make people interested in Christ by just yelling, John 3.16 at them over and over again. Um, but the verse is amazing because 
I think John 3.16 gives us an inside view of the reason for salvation. Okay? We often get hung up on the mechanism of salvation. And we will discuss and debate how atonement for sin works. How does someone take someone else's sins? And we can discuss details about who is saved and how they're saved and when it happens. We'll save that for later. Um, I, at least, have avoided the why. So this came to me yesterday, and I kind of had this thought, and Louis can listen to this later and, you know, question me on it, but um, I kind of had this thought that God does not have to offer us a path to salvation. He's God. He's the ultimate moral authority. He is the beginning and the end. He created all this for his pleasure. So we could be as insignificant to God as ants walking along a trail are to us. Instead, we see that God is compelled to offer us salvation out of his incredible love for us. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And most of us have heard this before. But God loved the world so much. This is how much God loved the world. He gave his Son. Okay, he didn't just send his Son. He doesn't take Jesus and just say, okay, go, go to earth. No, he gives him up. In verse 15... Immediately preceding this, it says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, Old Testament reference the Jews would have gotten, even so the Son of Man, Jesus, must be lifted up, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life, because God loved the world so much. The Gospel of John is written after this takes place. Right? It's not a running blog or a vlog. You're not watching this daily on YouTube getting updates. Uh, this is written after this has all gone down. So John's language here of lifting up the Son of Man is clearly a reference to Jesus' ultimate crucifixion and death. And so because this new life that we are given is grounded in the lifting up of Jesus in the crucifixion, we know ultimately that this is the climax. This is the crux of God's plan for salvation. This is the ultimate purpose of the Son's mission. And we know why. We know it stems from the love of the Father. And that, to me, is just incredible. Um, God sends his Son on a path to death out of his love for the world. And that's incredible not just because... Uh, the world is so big uh, and has so many people. It's also awesome um, because God loves everybody because the world is so bad. It's not just like the sheer volume of love that God has. It's the fact that we are sinners, and while we were yet sinners, the Bible says Christ came for us, even in that state. And so that brings me back to this. I love you all, but if you tell me it's my son or you, I'm choosing my son. And I haven't even met him yet. Jesus is a part of God. Jesus has been there from the beginning. So while I haven't met my son, the father and the son, capital father, capital son, have a pretty good relationship. 
even from the beginning in Genesis, when God is creating man, God says, let us create man in our image, in our likeness. God is not just like talking to himself. The word, Jesus, is there in the beginning with God. And so if God the Father and God the Son have spent an eternity together, have created everything together, have been one and the same, then I can't imagine the complexity of emotions of God the Father carving out a piece of himself and sending it to earth to die. And he did that for me. And I cannot begin to understand that. Because it's not just uh, the physical torture, which was awful. Uh, It's not the death. Sorry. Uh, It's not only the isolation, the condemnation of taking the world's sin. The other thing that gets me is that the father knows the weight he's placing on his son. The father knows he is staking the entire salvation plan on the ability of his son to live a perfect, sinless life, and then at the end of it, stare into the face of death and willingly accept it. And I cannot imagine placing that kind of burden on my son. But God did. And he did it for me. And he did it for you and everyone else that's in this room and outside of it, because even though we don't deserve it, He loves us. And I bring up this burden of perfection and salvation that's placed on Jesus because when we talk about the love of God the Father, we also have to look at the Son because in this case, the two are really inseparable. You cannot have God the Father without God the Son. They're two facets of the same God, right? Jesus uh, himself in John 14 says, "'Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father.'" He goes on to say, I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but rather it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. And again, we know what that work was, right? We see that this has already been outlined in John uh, 3 in verse 17. We talk a lot about John 3, 16, uh, but there's some great stuff that comes before and after it. In John 3, 17, it says, God did not send his son into the world to judge the world, but to save the world through him. And so here is where we see the love of the Father acted out through the Son, right? Jesus is the physical manifestation of God's love. And then Jesus' commitment to the Father's plan just blows my mind. Because Jesus, from a young age, knows who he is. There's not a lot of stories we get about Jesus as a child, but one of them, he's in his father's house teaching. And he asks his mother, you know, didn't you know what I would be doing? Didn't you know where I would be? So he knows who he is. He knows where this path ends. And certainly, at least by the beginning of his ministry, uh, knows the end game. And yet, he never wavers. We're reminded uh, every month of the crucifixion when we take communion. And we often look at this experience of the crucifixion. And we look uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane, where he begs for there to be another way. He falls on his face and is pleading with God. But ends with, not my will, 
but yours be done. And this is an incredible commitment to the plan. And I'd say many of us, or at least I, uh, would simply run from what's coming. If I knew what was coming, I'd be like, no, deuces, I'm out of here. Like, I'll drop the mic. Like, I don't want any part of this. Um, but Jesus not only goes through with it, um, but there were other times when he could have gotten off the highway, when he could have changed direction, when he could have said, no, I'm going to do this a different way. And one of the times is um, very early in the Gospels. It's when Jesus is driven out into the wilderness. Um, he goes out to be tempted by Satan. And this is a time for Jesus to grow in the Spirit and prepare for what he's about to do, right? This is Jesus' 40 days of fasting, of spending time with God, preparing for the ministry that he's about to have. And in the end of it, uh, he gets tempted by Satan. And when Satan tempts Jesus, his final temptation, he offers him all the kingdoms of the world, right? He takes him up to the highest point and says, all of this I will give to you if you will bow down, bend the knee, and worship me. And so here Satan is basically offering to put Jesus in charge of the world. He offers him the title king of the world, which he's going to earn through his crucifixion. But Satan here offers him a shortcut, right? He offers him a different route that doesn't involve the cross. So we look at this and we think, king of the world. Or at least I think, yeah, I'd like to drive a Bugatti around, eat filet mignon every day, be on permanent 24-7 vacation. That sounds awesome. Um, and I think this is kind of how it was taught to me, and we can't really blame us because we're humans. We think about ourselves. We think like, oh, okay, cool, selfishness. I get what I want. I get to be the king. People do what I tell them to do, and I have, like, unlimited wealth and whatever. Um, but in our selfish thinking about that king of the world, we miss why it would be tempting to Jesus. Because Jesus isn't looking for the hottest new chariot, right? Uh, he has—we see later on, he has the power to move through space and time. Like, he's in a room one moment, and then the next moment, he's not in the room, right? So he clearly doesn't need a new mode of transportation. He isn't concerned with fancy food or drink. I mean, the man turns water into wine without breaking a sweat, right? And not just any wine, like the best wine. So, uh— that's definitely not it. Going on a sightseeing vacation? Uh, this is the man who built the universe. He's seen it. He made it. Okay? It's his idea. So Jesus isn't tempted by any of this, because being the king of the world to Jesus means something entirely different. If Jesus is the king of the world, he can end all war. Peace in Israel and beyond? Done. If Jesus is the king, he can end hunger. No more famine. No more droughts. No more sickness. No disease. No poverty. If Jesus is the king of the world, he can restore it to the healthy and whole and complete world that it's supposed to be. And he can lead his people with a righteous benevolence that only God could. But for Jesus to take this path, he has to bend the knee to Satan. And ultimately, that robs us of the offer of salvation. And Jesus shuts down that avenue pretty quickly. Now, Satan comes at him again later through Peter. Uh, as we get to the end of Jesus' ministry, Jesus tells his disciples that he's going to be betrayed, that he's going to die, and then he'll rise again. But Peter, oh, Peter, Peter takes him aside <laughs> and rebukes him. And that is some guts to rebuke Jesus. But Peter rebukes him, and because Peter has in his mind that Jesus is going to be 
uh, the one that kicks off the rebellion, right? They're going to throw out the Romans, restore Israel. We all know this. Um, but Satan, again, is tempting Jesus with this political military role where he could be the liberator of Israel and ultimately of the world. But Jesus rejects this. Jesus doesn't take the cheap victory. He doesn't take the easy way out. He stays committed to the Father's plan despite knowing exactly where it will lead, despite knowing exactly what is coming. And if that doesn't sound rational to you, it's because it's not. It's love. Because the Father and Son pay such a heavy price, we must not cheapen the grace with which we are bought. If we claim to know Jesus, if we claim the promise of a new life in Christ, then this requires a change from us. Uh, The concept of cheap grace um, is not something I came up with. It was um, written about and made popular by um, a 20th century theologian, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who I'm sure a number of you know about, and I'm sure a number of you have read his book, The Cost of Discipleship. Fantastic. Uh, And so rather than simply trying to reinvent the wheel, I'm just going to share with you some of his writings because he says it better than I possibly could. He says, Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. It's baptism without church discipline. It's communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ. You compare this to costly grace. Costly grace confronts us as a gracious call to follow Jesus. It comes as a word of forgiveness to the broken spirit and the contrite heart. It is costly because it compels a man or woman to submit to the yoke of Christ and follow him. It is grace... Because Jesus says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. If we are to be followers of Christ, if we are compelled by the love that has shown us, then we must change. We cannot simply say that because all of our sins are forgiven, now and forever, that we can just keep doing the same things over and over and over again. There has to be a change in what we believe and in what we do. If that's not enough, uh, consider this. I'm about to go super nerd on you, so just track with me here, and if you have questions, we'll discuss it later. Uh, In the 20th century, we realized that time is a relative phenomenon. Even for us humans, time dilation is uh, the difference in time uh, between two events. And that can change depending on where you're at and how fast you're moving. Now, it's relative even for humans. Consider God, who is outside of time. God always has been, always will be. He has no beginning, he has no end. 
And it's hard for us to comprehend an existence outside of time, right? Because we structure our days by it. Like, I'm, I'm wearing a watch. My watch tells me when I have to be certain places and what I have to do. There's a timer at the back that tells me how long I've been speaking and how much more I should be going. There's a clock on the back so you guys can turn around and wonder when is he going to finish up. Time runs our existence. But God is unbound by time, and he is experiencing every moment of our existence at the same time. Uh, one of the ways that we think about this is that if he is above it all, like, say, in a helicopter watching a parade route, right? He sees the beginning and the end. He sees the entire path, where it goes, how it goes, and different things can happen at different spots on this route. But he is watching it from the outside. And Jesus, as God, is stuck down in a part of that parade. And so consider this, if time is relative, and God is seeing and experiencing all of time passing, every time we sin, every rebellion we choose, every time we cut down each other to serve our own selfish interests, we are dumping more sin and more condemnation on Christ as he hangs on the cross. We are driving the nails deeper. We are increasing the weight on his shoulders. Every day when we choose sin over righteousness, we are continuing to make the cross a more excruciating experience. My sin didn't just put Jesus on the cross. It's continuing to worship his, worsen his punishment even today. And that is a burden that I would never put on my son. But thank God it's not up to me. Thank God it's already been done. We have the communion tables um, set up here before us, and it, it reminds us of this tremendous sacrifice if you, if you know the Lord, if you follow him, then when you take communion, as Bonhoeffer said, do it with confession first. Do it with repentance. Make a change. Understand that, yes, your sins are forgiven. Yes, the sins you will commit tomorrow are forgiven, but that doesn't give you a free pass. It doesn't give me a free pass. Grace without change is cheap. If you don't have a relationship with Jesus, if you, if you haven't given your life to him, if you haven't made that change, then I'd invite you to make that decision first. Uh, rather than taking communion, not knowing what it is. Um, Darren will be over here at the well to pray with you, to answer questions and explain what this means. The love of the Father put in place this incredible plan that I could have never imagined, that I would never place on my son. The son becomes the representation of the Father's love, ultimately leading to this. It ends here, but he stuck it out. He did it for you and me and my son, who's not here yet, but one day. One day I'll tell him about it. So as the worship team comes up um, and we prepare to take communion, 
Prepare yourselves. Uh, reflect and remember that the Father's love is amazing. Remember the incredible price that was paid for our forgiveness. Today, we have three stations set up for communion. Two here in the front, one in the back. Come to the table. Come with a heart of confession, a heart ready to change. Come, take the elements, and experience the joy from the Father's love. Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, that you love us enough to send your Son. It's an incredible, amazing love that we just can't understand. And what a price it was for you, what a price it was for Jesus. God, as we take communion, we pray that you would bless the body, the bread. May we understand the physical toll that it took what it cost Jesus to give his life. As we take the blood, Father, may we be reminded that we are cleansed by his blood, that his blood pays the price. It's the blood that covers us, that atones for the sin.